Welcome to the Life Over Coffee podcast, conversations for transformation. I was reading the last verse in the book of Jonah, and it says, And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left hand, and also much cattle? Now, there's a couple things about that verse that just jump right out at you. First of all, that is the last verse of the book. And so this is a biblical cliffhanger. God is asking a question to Jonah, but we do not know what the answer is. We do not know what happens. There is not, there's not a Jonah part two. And so that's one thing. But the other thing is, is should not should I not pity Nineveh, this great city, who do, they do not know their right hand from their left? And the word that we're talking about here is the word cluelessness. The people of Nineveh are clueless. And that really begs a good question for us to think about. How do you care for clueless people? Now, I know in our soft, sensitive, postmodern culture, when you call people clueless, it is offensive, it is triggering, it is invading people's space and disrupting their self-esteem and all of this nonsensical stuff that we see in the culture. And so I recognize that the word really does sound harsh, but honestly, if you compare the word clueless to what the Bible says about us, uh, that's a pretty good word. Uh, It doesn't even come close to Uh, what total depravity really communicates or how God speaks about our total depravity in His Word. But the truth is, I think it would be helpful for us. I want to talk about how to care for clueless people, but I think it would be helpful for us to go ahead and level the playing field. And so as we think about how to care for clueless people in our immediate sphere and, and maybe even farther out, Well, the truth is that we are all clueless to some degree. Every one of us needs help. And so when I read a verse like this in Jonah 4, 11, shouldn't I pity Nineveh, that great city? They don't know their right hand from their left hand. Well, they're clueless, but yeah, I get it. Of course they are. We all need grace. I am clueless too. It does not matter your demographic. If you live here in the States or if you live in Nineveh or Tarshish, we need God's grace and mercy. We are grace-dependent creatures. Clueless is not a bad term. Actually, it is a cross-elevating, a ground-leveling truth that should motivate us to never judge anyone uncharitably because we're all in the same boat. Now, for gospel people, obviously it's not discouraging because we are not a people without hope. In fact, we could not even get close to hope and grace and mercy without acknowledging the fact that we are clueless, that that we are totally depraved, that we are alienated from God, that we are eternally damned. But we are people of hope because there is a gospel. And so let me give you a few illustrations about the universal cluelessness problem that we all have. For example, let's start with me, husbands. When a husband, when I get angry at our wives and 
Well, we have a theologically detached moment, TDM. I like to make up disorders because that's what the DSM people do. Uh, they make up disorders. They give them acronyms, and, and off to the races they go. And so I have TDM, a theologically detached moment when I get angry at my wife. I am momentarily clueless. You could say that that is insanity. Sanity is having the mind of Christ, and anything outside of the mind of Christ is insane. I'm going to call it clueless here for the next few moments. And I need God's intervention to bring me back to a right mind, a Christocentric mind, a clued-in mind. How about wives? When a wife nags or disrespects her husband, she needs God's redemptive mercies at that moment. She is acting like a clueless woman. Now, she, it could be that he has done something wrong, but there is a, there's an element of cluelessness in her life regarding the scope and the responsibility that is on her to help her brother who is caught in sin. And then children, well, we, <laughs> we know that they are clueless. We understand their need for patience and long-suffering and forbearance and practical leadership to guide them into adulthood. You could say they're similar to the Ninevites. Should not I have pity on my children? Uh, they do not know their left hand from their right hand. They are definitely clueless people. Unbelievers, of course. How about that unregenerate individual in your life? Does he fully comprehend his offense against God? No, he's clueless. Spiritual ignorance is his condition and grace is his need. Well, what about us on the other team, the regenerate ones? Even those who have been born again do not fully understand the depth of their need for daily grace and mercy. Now, my list is not an exhortation to let people off the hook. So when I say that, that people are clueless, I'm clueless, you're clueless. No, we're not saying, well, it's just okay for them to do whatever they want to do. And so we want to make sure that we're just not jumping in one ditch or the other. No, they do have to be held accountable. They will be held accountable. We will be held accountable for our actions. But cluelessness is just an omission of truth that we are unaware of God's thoughts in their entirety and we are unable to do what He can do and we need help. We are not the omniscient, omnipotent ones. And we can be clueless, necessitating God's intervening mercy, which is why He's asking this question to Jonah, and should not I pity Nineveh? Why are you so angry at these people, you racist human you? And so you see our cluelessness in the words of the Savior as he was dying on the cross. And I am sure that the people of that day felt assured of what they were doing, but not so from God's perspective. They were woefully clueless, and they needed him more than they ever imagined. Jesus said it this way, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. They are clueless too. And then that brings us to this verse, Jonah, Jonah 4, 11. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, 
and also much cattle. This is such an intriguing verse. Cluelessness is the point that we have reached in this study. I've done, this is my ninth, I believe, uh, podcast on the book of Jonah. I have written a book on it. It is in our store. It is free to you. It is called Storm Hurler. I want you to go to lifeovercoffee.com, and I want you to go to our store and download this free book. It is yours. But here we are at the last verse of this book, the book of Jonah. And actually, it provides the key to the entire book while appealing to Jonah. And I think that we could appropriately extrapolate that it it is appealing to us too. Because, see, Jonah did not answer the Lord's question, or the book does not tell us what the answer was. The book ended abruptly. That's it. That's the, end of the, that's the end of the book. It is a cliffhanger. The query is left dangling at the end of a short story, only four chapters, about a hard-hearted and racist man. And we are left to speculate about how Jonah answered the question. And so we can also assume and apply that question to ourselves. Should not God have pity? On Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? How would you answer it? Should the Lord pity the clueless? Bring it down into your own world without being disparaging and unkind, without mocking someone in your life? Should not God have pity on the clueless person in your life? Maybe the clueless person that you're married to, or maybe you're, you and your spouse are listening to this, and your spouse is looking over you said, you're the, clue, you're the clueless one. Should the Lord pity you? The context of the book and the exegetical implication of this verse seems to say that the Ninevites were clueless people. They did not fully understand what they were doing, and they needed the Lord's intervention, which is the whole point of the book. If you go back to the very beginning of the book, God called Jonah to go to Nineveh, and this four-chapter book could have been a whole lot shorter if Jonah would just obeyed the call and went to Nineveh and not to Tarshish. And so if you read the whole book in one sitting while trying to understand the point, it does appear the Lord wanted to help the ignorant Ninevites. And I praise God at that, poem, at that moment because I was that ignorant person in 1984. And every year prior to that, for 25 years, I was an ignorant human being. And God positioned different people in my life to speak to this clueless man so that I could be clued in about the gospel. And in this case of of Jonah, not only were the Ninevites ignorant, clueless, but he was using a clueless man to carry his message to a clueless people. The Lord said that the Ninevites did not know their right hand from their left hand. The Lord had been appealing to Jonah to participate in his redemptive rescue of these wayward and blind people. From the first two verses of the book, the Lord was considering these people and their need for him to intervene in their lives. Isn't that a fantastic thing? I love the word considering. Uh, You see the implication of that word 
word in Ephesians 1 where God predestined us. God considers us when he turns his face toward us and considers us, we the clueless ones. And this is what he was doing in the book of Jonah. We see God as a relentless, grace-giving, mercy-offering Redeemer from the beginning of the book all the way to the very last sentence in the book. And we see Jonah, a self-centered, angry prophet who had rather die than to see the blind Ninevites enjoying the grace of God. Isn't that profound? How could anyone harbor that kind of hate toward other image bearers, regardless of their religion, regardless of their paganism, regardless of how different they are from us? How could it be? But that is exactly what Jonah was doing. He wants them to stay clueless and lost and so in Jonah chapter 1, here's the first two verses. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. My goodness, I, I, that's me. And, and, and I want God to, to, to speak to prophets, to speak to individuals and say, rise up and, and go to Rick and, and to call out against his evil that has come up before me. God is considering this community, this town, this city. And I'm very grateful that people obeyed that call many, many years ago. But Jonah didn't want to live in a world that extends grace to his enemies. What was implied in the first three chapters is said explicitly in chapter 4. The implication in the first three chapters is that Jonah just did not like these people. But as we get to the end of this story, and as we start going through chapter 4, we really see in, in technicolor the, the anger and the hostility and, and the bias and the prejudice that uh, and the hatred that Jonah had toward these people. God comes as the wonderful counselor and the relentless redeemer, asking Jonah some challenging questions. And Jonah did not like his question asking God. And so in chapter 4, he left the scene and he went and he sat under a shelter and he hoped to take a, a wait-and-see attitude toward the Ninevites. There is no question about what he was hoping for. It was not pity, as we see in the last sentence of the chapter. It was not mercy nor grace. The gospel irony in this passage is that the Lord was showing the same mercy to Jonah that he was offering to the Ninevites. You see, if you hate somebody, maybe those people or person that you hate, yeah, maybe they are legitimately sinning and they need God's mercy. But if you hate them, then you need God's mercy too. The irony is just thick in this chapter, in chapter 4. God was not just a relentless redeemer for the Ninevites. They were not the only clueless people who needed His help. 
In Romans 9.15, Paul said this, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. God was showing mercy and compassion to the Ninevites. And praise God, he was showing mercy and compassion to this stubborn prophet that he was working with. God would not let the Ninevites go. And he was not about to let go of his prophet. Even when you run from God, he runs hard after you. Even when you give up on God, he will not give up on you. God's grace is the only thing in this story that is more shocking than Jonah's sin. Nobody will be as patient or kind to you as God will. No matter your sin, what it is, God's grace is greater still, whether you're a Ninevite or you're a prophet, Jonah. Jonah blows off God's question, and he does leave the scene, but his sinful action does not deter God. God is immovable. He is not, he is not manipulatable, and so he comes back to Jonah another way. He gives Jonah a plant to make him happy. Okay, so Jonah's not going to go talk to the Ninevites. He's going to sit under his lean-to, and he's just going to grumble. Well, God is a relentless redeemer, and so he brings this plant because Jonah needs shade over his head. And then God comes right back, and he takes away the plant, and Jonah loses his comfort and now he wants to die again. He has a suicidal ideation throughout this little short book, and so here he is wanting to die again. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? God is a question asking God, and these are the things that irritate us when we want to settle in on our anger is when people are asking us rhetorical questions, and so God says, do you do well to be angry? Initially, God appointed a storm and a, a well to get Jonah's attention. And though it was a wake-up call, it did not wake him up completely. And then in this passage, notice what is going on. God appoints a plant and a worm that eats the plant to get the prophet's attention. Jonah was happy with his plant, and, then, and things were going well. And then the worm came along, and Jonah was back to being mad again. Jonah did not seem to understand how God used the plant and used the worm to draw out his anger. The Lord was turning up the heat using one of his tiniest creations. Do you see what is happening here to Jonah? He was an angry man. The longer he resisted God, the more upset he became. And isn't that the way it is? You see this downward deterioration of a human soul in Romans chapter one, where God's wrath comes down on heaven, uh, comes down from heaven against any person who pushes the truth of God out of their lives, suppresses the truth. And as you see that passage working through, the deterioration of humanity gets worse and worse in Romans one. And this is what we see here in uh, the book of Jonah. The longer he resisted God, the more upset he became to the point that even the little discomforts of life were becoming significant annoyances. 
When you continue to resist God, you will continue down a self-destructive path to where anything and everything will cause you anger. Take note of Jonah's sinful progression. In verse 6, God gave Jonah a plant, and Jonah was happy. In verse 7, God appointed a worm for Jonah, and Jonah was unhappy. In verse 8, God sent an east wind to Jonah, and Jonah wanted to die. You see the deterioration here. As he continued to resist God from chapter 1 to chapter 4, and now we're teasing it out in chapter 4. The progression of sin for an angry man. What in the world are we talking about here? Weeds, worms, wind. Jonah was coming unglued. He was a mess. The most minor things were setting him off in anger. The problem was not so much about the Ninevites anymore as it was about Jonah's worship dysfunction. It is as though the Lord was saying, You are the cause of your misery, Jonah. That's the answer to the question that God is asking him. And he kept asking him questions. He wanted Jonah to see how this was not primarily about pagan people getting saved. Jonah could whine and whine about the Ninevites, but he was missing the point of all of his trouble. If a man goes from being angry at a people group to angry at worms and plants... I think we can safely conclude that he is an angry man. In verse 9, it says, But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? Jonah was the cause of his misery. His anger was not primarily about what was happening in his external world. It was not primarily about the call to go and speak and uh, to preach to the Ninevites but it was about what was happening inside of him. And our anger is the same. When we go from anger over big things like storms and, and big fish to anger over little things like weed and weeds and wind and worms, then we have bigger problems than we realize. These little annoyances are God's small ways of teaching us about His extravagant grace. Isn't this how most arguments go? We get angry at a traffic light, not realizing that our anger hurts our spouses, it hurts our children, possibly other motorists, not to mention defaming God's name. We get angry over spilled milk, and our children are left to absorb the mess of our sins. We lose a paper due to a software malfunction, and three people are on the receiving end of our sin. Our spouses disappoint us again, and we let them have it, and we're only talking about a minor infraction. A husband says something unkind, but at that moment, the heat of his words negates the redemptive possibility the wife could exhibit toward him. What I'm identifying is the jostling of our comfort, which was Jonah's problem. An entire people group was going to hell, and Jonah was worried about his happiness in his lean-to. A significant difference between how we can love and how God loves 
is that he always values people over personal comfort. Worms and plants are not the objects of his affection, but they can be ours. This is Romans 1. I referenced it earlier. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles and weeds and and worms. I'm adding those last two from Jonah's book. Here are a few plants and worms that can get in the way of our affection for people. These things can mean the most to us, even sinning against God and others when something rattles our idols. This is not an exhaustive list. It's just a a few things that can become so important to us that we can really lose the thread. And we not focused on the bigger things that God is really interested in. Little idols like our reputation, convenience, health, preferences, materialism, and of course, our appearance. Augustine said that the city of God is a place where the inhabitants love people and walk on gold. The city of man is a place where the inhabitants love gold and walk on people. The entire book of Jonah comes down to this final question in verse number 11. If Jonah cared so much about a plant that he had nothing to do with, shouldn't God care about a lost and hellbound city of people? And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh? that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. The Ninevites were clueless. They have gone astray. They have lost their way. Without God, they have no idea what living for Him or each other means. And then the book stops with an open-ended question abruptly, we do not know how Jonah answered this query, but the open nature of the question leaves us with a similar appeal. Shouldn't I care about the people who appear to be the enemies of God? What if we get more personal? Are you okay with the fact that God passionately cares for and wants to show grace to people that you cannot stand? How God interacts with Jonah seems to indicate how the presence of enemies in his life is not random. I don't think the Ninevites is just a willy-nilly demographic that propped up to be part of a story because God needed some actors to be part of this narrative. Now, God was inviting the prophet into a deeper understanding and experience of his grace. God, the question asker, was exploring Jonah's heart, helping him to understand how the enemies of God could be used redemptively in his life. Perhaps a few well-placed questions would benefit us at this juncture. Who is the toxic person in your life? Who is your Ninevite? Who is the annoying person in your life, the adversarial person in your life, the evil person in your life? Be careful how you think about them. 
if you focus more on what they did or who they are, then your starting place will be wrong. The Ninevites consumed Jonah's mental state. He had the wrong starting place. He could not see himself. These people were not just placed in the narrative willy-nilly. They were placed there by the forethought of God. If our first thought is what they have done to us rather than what we have done to Christ, we will not be able to think and to act redemptively toward them, especially at the moment when we need to respond redemptively toward them. This backward thinking is what happened to Jonah. He could clearly tell you what was wrong with the Ninevites and be right about it, but he seemed to have amnesia regarding how he saw himself. If the gospel were actively guarding his heart and mind, he would have begun redemptively rather than reactively. And so if our response toward people, if that is our starting point, then we will respond reactively and we will miss a grander purpose that we could benefit from, from what God wants to do in our lives. But if we start at the right place, as we consider our own hearts, our own attitudes, our own worldview, the grace of God, the power of God, the ability of God, we will begin redemptively, not reactively, as Jonah did. Years ago, I asked a lady how her husband had failed her. She met this first question with a list that went on for five minutes, and this is a true story. When she finished, I asked her to tell me how she had failed her husband. And she met my second question with a perplexed and blank stare. She went from articulate to dumbfounded in a matter of seconds. If this is how we think about others, especially those who have hurt us, then redemption is not our goal. We are reacting to them, not thinking redemptively toward them. The gospel is not the primary thing in that kind of person's life. Now, maybe your enemies are not obstacles to keep you from growing in grace, but maybe they are a means to which you can grow in grace. In Jonah's worldview, the Ninevites were keeping him from growing in grace, but he never realized they were actually the means that God was using to help him to grow in grace. You will know if they are obstacles by how you think about and respond to them. Jonah focused on the Ninevites' sin. God focused on the Ninevites' need for mercy. What is your focus regarding the clueless people in your life? If you would like to read what I just shared with you, you're welcome to go to lifeovercoffee.com. Just type clueless people in the search box and you will get a full transcript of what I just shared with you. The actual title is How to Care for Clueless People. Sometimes our enemies are God's instruments of grace to draw out who we are and what is wrong with us. Your enemy could be the most clarifying mirror for the brokenness in your soul. If God's grace is unconditionally extended to His enemies as He brings it to you, how should you think about God? How should you think about your enemies? How should you think about yourself? Are you okay with God wanting to use your enemy to change you? The clueless need your help, not your scorn. 
If they do not get God's mercy and grace, they will pay for their sins one way or the other. We want to think rightly about the, our enemies, those people who reject God, those people that aren't a part of the community of faith. No, we do not condone any sin that they do, but they need God's grace just as we did when we were in their condition. Astonishingly, God would allow us to be part of His redemptive work. How does this statement affect you? that God permits you to be part of His redemptive work. What changes, if any, do you need to make? Now, if you do need to make some changes about how you think about your the Ninevite in your life, then I would encourage you to speak with someone, a leader in your church, maybe a pastor, some other person in your church, but that you would speak with them and say, I, you know what, um, the way that I think about certain people uh, is, is not the way God wants me to think about them. I'm not condoning their sin. I will never condone their sin. I will never become a Ninevite. But they need God's mercy. And I have the power. I have the ability. I have the opportunity. But I don't have the grace. I don't have the compassion. I don't have the courage to go and share the message of Christ with them. And so the last verse of Jonah finishes in 4.11, And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? Well, point number one, we're all clueless. Point number two, some of us have received the grace of God, have received God's pity. Point number three, there's a lot of people who have not. And it's on you and me to go share that gospel message with them. We don't want to be like Jonah, and I'm not throwing shade on him. I trust, and I probably I can imagine, I think, uh, properly that, that he got it all aligned eventually. And I do think the clarity and the transparency of his book, uh, because his example is not out of line of how I live my life. And so I find it affirming, encouraging, also convicting, and motivating to want to change. And I trust that you do too. My name is Rick Thomas. This is Life Over Coffee. You can find me and my coffee shop at lifeovercoffee.com. Thanks so much. Thanks for joining us. Learn more and get access to other resources at lifeovercoffee.com.